Hello. From Nelson downwards, the Napoleonic era contains some fine examples of spirited, dashing, enterprising leaders doing their bit to help the British cause. Naval figures like Thomas Cochrane and Sidney Smith spring to mind, but so too do the diplomats, people like Robert Wilson and Francis Drake. One of the oddest of them all, however, is Sir Home Popham, who is the subject of a new biography by Jacqueline Reiter. Jacqueline appears in episodes one and four of the Napoleonic Quarterly, and she'll return in time to talk through the Walcheren debacle and hopefully one or two other things as well. But here she is now talking about her work, exploring the life of the man for whom the facepalm was surely invented. So, okay, so Metternich, Castlereagh, um, Pitt, these are the big figures of the uh, age. Um, I can think of one or two others. Um, but um, it, there's so much interesting history to be had out of um, slightly lesser known figures, let's say. And so, obviously, I wanted to ask you about Sir Home Riggs Popham. Yeah. Um, and um, what first drew you to him? And who, who was he as a character? <laughs> yes. Um, so, so Home Popham um, is, uh, well, what drew me to him? Well, uh, <laughs> let's say most of the factors at play here were more, more of the repulsion kinds. <laughs> Um, Well, for those who don't know who who he is, how how would you sum him up? Oh, gosh, sum him up. Um, I've got a picture on my wall which describes him as the uh, remarkable but controversial Sir Hume Popham. It's the uh, Hmm. the picture and the caption. I printed it out and put it on my wall. That's about where we are. Um, (laughs) It's quite an amazing personality. He was, for, for the majority of the wars, he was a Royal Navy captain. I think he got his uh, his um, he was made post captain at the um, uh, beginning of seventeen ninety the end of seventeen ninety four I think or maybe the beginning of seventeen ninety five um, yeah. and he became an admiral in eighteen fourteen so between seventeen ninety four and eighteen or seventeen ninety five and eighteen fourteen he was a royal navy captain you'd have thought that makes him um, fairly insignificant. Um, in political terms, it really doesn't. Um, he managed to worm his way in to the confidences of people like Pitt um, and uh, Henry Dundas, Lord Melville, who was probably his prime patron. And he right. crops up yeah. in all sorts of bizarre places, um, diplomatic missions to Russia and the, and, and the Middle East, for example, or uh, um, and slightly Underhand things like um, submarine warfare against uh, the French. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's proposing plans for uh, um, campaigns, plans which actually come into being, such as um, the Wolfram expedition is perhaps, probably, partly traceable to him in 1809. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, that worked out, didn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. So he's, he's 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 surprisingly influential, and he crops up everywhere, absolutely everywhere. 
Right. How, un- how unusual is that um, for this period? Because you do have people like um, Robert Wilson yes. who um, who were sort of just gallivanting around. Sydney Smith, yes. these rogue characters. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to mention those two. I mean, he's certainly not unique. He's definitely in the mould of, of Wilson, um, Sydney Smith, um, Lord, uh, Thomas Cochrane, um, those people. Um, but I think the, the main difference between him and them is that he's really overtly less outwardly shall we say less well connected than they are um right he was born in gibraltar he was something like the seventh son i'd 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 have to count it the the numbers change all the time he could have had up to uh, um something like 40 siblings according to one source this is not true Uh, (laughs) um but he was very very younger son of a minor um civil servant uh so his you know, starting start in life was fairly low on the ladder, and he he manages to somehow by 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 talking a lot, I suspect, uh, get himself <laughs> um, trusted by some of the most prominent decision makers in in the country. What what, what was his what was his most outrageous um, <laughs> idea or suggestion? Well, was it Walker or no? <laughs> <laughs> that's so to say that um, his most outrageous activity was his apparently um, independent decision to, um, after successfully helping the amphibious landing at the Cape of Good Hope in 1806, to take yes. his fleet and half the troops over to South America. Why not? Um, <laughs> and invade Buenos Aires and. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but that's terrible. Yeah, it, it was <laughs> terrible because it, it, it um, ended up in about 18 months of complete military chaos, uh, yeah. <laughs> which ended, of course, in, in complete defeat for, for, for Britain. And it was all his fault. And you would have thought that that would have broken most people, but it didn't. Um, he was court-martialed for leaving his post and found guilty and let off with a slap on the wrist and three months later, he was captain of the fleet in Copenhagen. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, we're sort of in a post-imperialist frame of mind these days. And um, the idea of just sailing off across the ocean and then, you know, causing trouble, basically, I think possibly causes us to wince. How, how do you think approaching a figure like that in the times we're in now sort of shapes the the approach i mean th- this problem of well just trying to work out obviously he's an unusual character for the time but trying to calibrate against what he was like w- what he would have seemed like to others at the time i suppose is the challenge yes. um well i mean he was a very controversial figure at the time but i think part of the reason that he managed to get the ear of important people was because he told them what they wanted to hear and what he was telling particularly um, henry dundas lord melville uh was this war is a global war. It is not about um, beating the French maybe in Europe. I mean, that's quite important too. But what this is really about is resources and trade and global networks. So, I mean, he was very much um, an, ah. a proto-imperialist, shall we say. I mean, I wouldn't say that he, he was definitely not out for um, sort, of, um, sort of mid-19th century imperialism. He was very much a sort of... Uh, right. Um, trade but that's interesting in itself because there there is a discussion going on about whether this was a total war or not and and probably that's um slightly 20th century Mm. approach perhaps but but certainly 
the, the global dimensions of uh, an essentially European conflict. Um, this this has something to say about that, I suppose. Oh, very much so. Um, and I, I think Popham is just one small piece of this broader puzzle. Um, and in many ways, he's taking me out of my comfort zone because I normally look at the military um, and the political manoeuvring, I can't pronounce that word all of a sudden, on the <laughs> continent. Um, but Popham is definitely not about that. He's definitely about going off to South America to, at the drop of a hat. He's all over the place. He's in the Red Sea. He's in the Indian Ocean. He's in. Um, he's off China. Um, he's got um, plans for taking over Mauritius. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's got all these ideas. Um, and he's very much part of what... Dundas was thinking as well. Uh, Dundas is sort of what you might call blue water thinking, um, was very right, much in the direction right. of um, we need to make the French say uncle in their pocket, um, you know, that we need to attack them in their colonies, we need to destroy their econ- uh, uh, the economy, um, we need, and at the same time we can consolidate Britain's trade connections and uh, make Britain stronger using her navy. Um, and that's where Poppy yeah, comes in. Yeah. He's a very small part of the puzzle, as I said, but he is part of that puzzle. And uh, um, that's why he does so well, despite doing stupid things, uh, <laughs> because he is able to spin a tail which fits into this larger, larger picture. So one thing that fascinates me about the period is what you just said, the relationship between the political and the military and how they, how they interact with each other. And I suppose a figure like him, he was, he was thinking, he was a military figure who was, was he thinking politically or thinking a, a, about the, the political impacts of his decisions? Geopolitical maybe is a better way of putting it. Yes, uh, he, he, he certainly was. I mean, he was thinking of, um, uh, um, he had very broad ranging ideas of what uh, needed to happen. I mean, a lot of it was very optimistic. So, you know, if uh, we take the French in, uh, over here, then this colony will fall down and we'll be able to take over. And wow, look at us, we're so rich. Um, but, um, yeah. you know, he, he was definitely locating himself within a broader um, policy. Um, and I don't know at this stage exactly how much um, he was told as part of the sort of um, the broader picture. I don't suppose he was told very much like people like Dundas, um, but he had very high, high-ranking high family members in the East India Company. Um, and I do wonder whether he had a lot of contacts in that direction. I mean, have you unearthed lots of... There must be questions, uh, unanswered questions that you've unearthed. You've answered some in your in your work, but but there must be some tantalising questions which remain unanswered. What are your biggest, I don't know, frustrations or the the, the big question marks over him? Well, gosh, there are so many. Um, I think yeah. the thing is he, he, he appears and disappears all the time um, because he is used in these slightly underhand ways. And a lot of the business that he was involved in was very hush-hush, um, and things just aren't always written down. And you get references to the conversation right. we had yesterday. That thing that we spoke about, you know, that. Uh, <laughs> maybe not in those words, but this crops up in the correspondence all the time. And he had these yeah, yeah. networks, um, which he had th- uh, um, 
that a lot of the um, uh, western and northern coast of Europe, which he had built up himself uh, when he was trading, because in the 1780s, before the war broke out, he was trading independently. Um, and a lot of these networks were through smugglers, essentially, um, as far as I can see, which made him quite interesting to the government in another um, sense as well. Um, and I think this is this is something else that he's got that other people, uh, other peers didn't necessarily. He has these networks. Would you go so far as to call him a rogue? Yes. <laughs> I call him many things. That is one of many things. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think at the same time, it's not um, entirely helpful to look at him exactly in those terms. Uh, I mean, he wasn't, he definitely, he was a very useful person to have. He wasn't a nice person, I don't think. Um, he wasn't the kind of person that I would trust necessarily. Hmm. But, but the government did trust yes, him. Yes, <laughs> well, they did to a certain extent. Um, <laughs> uh, he was uh, um, the kind of person they could trust to do dirty work. Wow. <laughs> um, so he gets a certain yeah. amount of protection to that extent. Um, he sounds absolutely fascinating. He is. He's... he's uh, um, but yes, I mean, as I was saying, looking at him simply as a maverick is not it is not very helpful because it does conceal the extent to which he was trusted by the government and the extent to which he was doing things that yes, they they felt that his heart yes. was probably in the right place or or, yes. or or at least his his general thrust of thinking. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he was very useful, and he did. Um, he he anted up. He didn't just say. Um, I've got these great ideas. Oh, whoops! I'm not going to do it. He actually did stuff. What, what, what was it? So, what were his? What about a couple of examples of his most useful things that he he did do that were genuinely helpful to the war effort? The thing that um, probably made him come to Dundas's attention was the sea fencibles, um, which was uh, ostensibly his idea in 1790, uh, sort of mid 1790s came into fruition in about 1798. Um, and he was working very closely with the uh, the War Department um, because Dundas then was Secretary of State for War. Um, and that was, I think, where he you know, suddenly appeared as this person who not only has great ideas, but actually does things. And just for those who don't know, what what, what, what were the Sea Fencibles? Sea Fencibles were a, uh, it was a defensive force um, based on um, people with with seamanship experience uh so it was meant to be um they were meant to be manning the the defenses uh, going out in boats and scouting the coast for you know just watch out for, for the french if the french were invading um and then they were supposed to come back and and uh, ring the alarm um they were mostly elderly you know older sea people uh, but they were also smugglers um and Poppins Networks at work there again. Um, and they were exempt from the naval impress, um, which was partly what made them so popular. Um, and it was Popham's idea, um, or at least he claimed it was his idea. I haven't found any evidence to the contrary as yet. But a lot of times when he says, this was my idea, someone had had it first. Uh, <laughs> right. But he was definitely the one who made it work. And that is the, the important part. Um, and he was moving around the South Coast all the time, going from post to post. Um, he was also using, using them as a sort of uh, information network 
uh, to find out how people on the south coast were feeling about the government, you know, not just about the French coming, but about the government. Um, So it was a multifaceted thing. And I think it was that that really brought him to attention. Um, Because after that, you start finding him sending memoranda into the government. Some of them were solicited, some of them were not. Um, but all were read and circulated, and some of them became plans, like the attack on Ostend in 1798. And then he starts being used as a diplomat in Russia, um, and I think that's where he kind of consolidates his um, uh, um, his usefulness and starts to show his versatility, because it's not just the military stuff; it's also the politics. So he was he was able to be useful, and that's yes, what that's what exactly. yeah really drove him. Yes. And yeah. Um, and what what and what came of him? Um he he was an admiral by the end of um uh, the war, um by the end of 1815, but but what 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 happened to him after that? Well, essentially he he pushed his luck. Um and he did so well before the end of the war. Um he was outlived his usefulness, shall we say. Um right. became more embarrassing than useful. Um and that probably started with Walcheren, um, although I think Buenos Aires and uh, the aftermath of that was a, a, a good dent into <laughs> his usefulness, but he continued to be used. Um, but after Walcheren, he, he spends a lot of time kicking his heels. Um, he's sent off the uh, into the channel, um, and he really wants to be doing other things. He keeps bombarding the First Lord of the Admiralty with memoranda saying, what about this, this amazing opportunity? I could do it. Um, but he never is used um, until 1812, and he's sent off uh, the coast of Spain to cooperate with um, Lord Wellington. He does very well, but I think he he uh, is perhaps a little too exuberant in his post, um, <laughs> right. and he isn't reappointed. What, what, what sort of things was he doing? Um, well, he was uh, acting with the uh, the, the Spanish, um, Spanish army and the Spanish guerrillas on land. Um, and yeah. he, In the Mediterranean? Yes. Uh, well, right. no, from, from the Bay of Biscay, that, that area. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, north coast of Spain. Um, right. And he took or helped in the taking of Santander, um, and uh, he was he was very useful in in, in distracting or um, is distracting the word I'm looking for here, um, acting as a, a diversion um, at the time of Salamanca, for example. And uh, Lord uh, Wellington did acknowledge that in his dispatches. Um, right. He kept yeah. a load of French troops pinned down at the time when Wellington really needed that to happen. So, I mean, he did really useful stuff, but he was very difficult to get on with um, because he had a very inflated sense of his own <laughs> authority. So he would probably think of himself as an active and enterprising officer. Yes, very, oh, um, no, enterprising is a word he uses quite a lot. Um, <laughs> I bet. That probably sums it up. That probably, you know, it, it's that's, that's the brand, isn't it? It's yeah. Enterprising, full of initiative and panache yeah. and <laughs> vehement. Some bad ideas. Indeed, yes. <laughs> So as as a as a historian, yes. um, I mean, how, how did you find the process of writing his biography, and how do you feel about it now? I mean, when you sort of when you when you think of him, do you think like there was so much more to him, or, or do you think that, uh, that you know you have I don't know maybe tried to um, bring to attention this fascinating figure? 
Um, well, I'm certainly not the first person to bring him to attention. Um, and there was a biography published um, about 30 years ago, um, which um, certainly could be argued as the first time that he was really displayed in, in all his glory um, to the public. Um, however, that biography was um, not as critical as it could be of some of his decisions. For example, it says that uh, at Walcheren, he was he was just there. He was doing his job. He was asked to go to Walcheren and um, he had nothing to do with the planning. No. Um, <coughs> so um, it doesn't go into some of the juicier stories, shall we say. Um, right. As a historian, I find him quite frustrating because um, he is the kind of person that you can't trust. So he's left an Ooh. enormous paper trail, an absolutely unbelievable paper trail. Um, <laughs> he and you're very suspicious down. of all of it. <laughs> yeah, but, but wrote everything down, sometimes in triplicate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> circulated it to everyone. He was very famous for publishing pamphlets um, in his own defence. Um, so there were loads of pamphlets as well. Um, but a lot of it is is very, yeah, I had to take it with a pinch of salt. Um, he's got his own agenda and he knows what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing. So that is the most difficult thing to do um, is to sort out what he really meant, um, <laughs> what he was doing behind the scenes and what, you know, what was true and what wasn't, which I suppose is something that all historians have a problem with, but <laughs> it just seems to be an issue. Working on the legacy, you could keep a focus on your legacy, yeah. Yes. And, I, and I, I suppose he obviously was a man who recognised the importance of reputation um, and was, was willing to spend quite a lot of his time spinning away, I suppose. Yes. Oh, very much. Um, uh, and I, I just realised I've I've been talking about him for I don't know what twenty minutes or so without even mentioning his um, system of um, um, telegraphy, uh, which, <laughs> which just. Oh yeah, go on then. So yeah, but, but how how did that work then? Well, I mean that, that that's probably what he's most famous for, apart from going off on a madcap dash to Buenos Aires, is probably making uh, or again making work a system of telegraphy, uh, which was used in the Navy for much of the 19th century. Um, it was used so at this isn't the, <laughs> this is, So this isn't the semaphore system um, uh, used uh, on land? It was used with semaphore. It could be harnessed for semaphore, but it was basically flags, um, you know, the signalling flags on, on um, um, signalling, his signals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he uh, in, invented or adapted, depending on your point of view, a vocabulary which um, he made again. He made it work. Um, he took a lot of elements that existed and he made the work a lot better than they used to. Uh, so so he quicker. was he was the person who came up with the signals yeah. system. Uh, well, not not the whole system, but he came up with a particular system which was widely used. Um, and right. it, was, it was the one responsible for the uh, England expects every man to do his duty at Trafalgar. Um, which uh, is something he dined out on for years afterwards because he wasn't actually actual, he was there in spirit. So, <laughs> um, wow, gosh, yeah. But uh, so that was part of his legacy, and he was very, very protective of his um, signals to the extent of sort of you know throwing mud at people who had alternative signal systems. You know, this is rubbish. Use mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably bogged down in the. In the in the technical details of the time as to yeah as to how it works, but I can see that. I mean, it's such a prominent part of you read any naval fiction of the time, 
and obviously you know it's the fundamentals of communication and how how well, a fleet yeah, exactly. operates it's just critical yeah yeah i mean that, that that was his in many ways what made him stand out from others which was his ability to make things work better and to improve things and to uh you know uh, he had a very practical mindset and that is probably most most reflected in his signals was there something about the the time that encouraged kind of a little bit of rebelliousness i'm thinking of Nelson at St. Vincent just completely <laughs> going rogue and doing brilliantly yeah, yeah, yeah. as a result and sort of launching his career. It's almost as if rules <laughs> at the time were made to be yeah. broken. And there was, was there a greater tolerance for, for just being a little bit cheeky and I doing your own thing? I think there was if it worked. Um, I think um, Popham's twin problems were that uh, it didn't always work for him. Um, and he was as I said, not very easy to get on with. And I think he just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And then he did some stupid things. <laughs> he did the stupid things. Okay, so yeah. so here's, the, here's a proposition. Is the difference between Nelson and Popham that, because Nelson was not an entirely attractive character, uh, particularly on land, uh, you know, especially after the Nile, that awful fawning, etc. I think there are some parallels between the two. Is it just that Nelson's crazy ideas came off Tenerife notwithstanding um and and Popham's were a bit you know a bit more patchy I um, I'd, I'd, I'd hesitate to go as far as to compare him to Nelson I think that's going <laughs> a bit too far um, go on. <laughs> but I, think he, um, I wouldn't say that Popham had genius I would say that Nelson had genius and I think that's probably what elevates Nelson above Popham I think that Popham was was uh, a very Useful, practical person. I keep using the word useful. Um, it's probably the best word that describes him apart from rogue, which uh, we've right. already touched on. Um, I think that he was very, um, like Nelson, people were very happy to um, overlook his some of his faults so long as he was able to pay up and uh, deliver the goods. Um, and Nelson continued doing that pretty much until the end with, uh, you know, yeah. there, there, there were some moments at <laughs> Tenerife. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, generally it was, you know, he was able to, to, to do his job and do it extremely well. Popham was also able to do his job, but sometimes he took it too far. And um, I, th I think, you know, things like Buenos Aires show less genius, more what the heck are you thinking? Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, certainly his his plan for, for, for Walcheron, which was largely based on a plan that he'd drawn up um, and kept on pitching to the government for about 10 years before it happened. There was a lot wrong with that. I mean, there was a, a lot of it was wrong in the execution, um, which wasn't necessarily his fault entirely. But a lot of it was also, this isn't a good idea. <laughs> this really isn't yeah. a good idea. Um, I think that is the difference, whereas Nelson could pull things off. Popham sometimes couldn't. Well, Jacqueline, it's so interesting hearing about um, Popham, and you mentioned that his his um, the two hundredth anniversary of his death is is upon us, uh, September twenty twenty. Um, but your book won't be out until well, you know, we, we will be waiting a little bit uh, longer, but we're looking forward to, to to seeing it when it comes out. 
Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's going to be another year or so. But um, if people want to follow me on Twitter, they can get their daily dose of what the heck did Popham do now, uh, which is pretty much what my Twitter ha- uh, what my Twitter account has turned into. Um, so <laughs> there will be Popham antics um, in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it's at late Lord Chatham. Um, which is, of course, a reference to um, your first book yes. on John Pitt. Yes, um, the, uh, the the Back to Walkerin. <laughs> yes. um, Crikey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, in my podcast, um, there's a long way to go until Walkerin, and um, uh, goodness knows what episode that's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to speaking to you. Um, um, when it comes to that, um, and hopefully on, on on one or two other things as well. Okay. Um, but 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 for now, thanks very much, and um, I, I'll, I'll leave you to your popping. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure it should be a verb. Oh, I think it should. I think it should. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with it. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, well, all the best. Well, thank you to Jacqueline, and to hear more of her thoughts on Sir Home Popham, do take a look at her recent presentation to the Masena Society's 2021 conference, where she discusses Sir Home's amphibious career under the heading A Scoundrel for All Seasons? Question mark. Although I think question mark exclamation mark might have been more apt. <laughs>